0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Karen Manton. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, stolen lands. Karen Martin's short stories have won five Northern Territory Literary Awards. They've been published in various anthologies, including Best Australian Stories, Review Australian Fiction, and Landmarks. Karen is joining us today with her first novel, The Curlew's Eye. Greta and Joel have a good life travelling with their boys. They go where the work is and enjoy the adventure of the road. As they return to the land where Joel grew up, Greta looks forward to a more stable existence, perhaps somewhere they can settle. The homestead is on an isolated property in the Northern Territory, a burnt-out house surrounded by the skeletons of old cars. Joel's there to build and prepare the land for sale, and he seems to want to ignore the tragedy that happened there in his childhood. Greta, too, is avoiding her own hometown and secrets. But in this new place, she's conscious that she is an outsider in the landscape. She has her stories, but the land has its own. Join me as we discover Karen Manton's The Curlew's Eye. Karen, welcome. It's great to have you here from, uh, from opposite ends of the country.
1: That's right, and it's lovely to have the opportunity to talk to you, Andrew.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity to travel. At least in my mind, you know we're still not still not freely travelling, but through the Curlew's eye, you've brought me to the Northern Territory and transported to me, me to this extraordinary landscape. I want to give a, I want to give people a little bit of a sense of the story. We're centering on Greta and Joel, and they they have a good life. Traveling with their boys, they go where the work is. They enjoy the adventure of the road. But now they're returning to the land where Joel grew up, an isolated property in the Northern Territory. And Joel's there to build and to prepare the land, and he seems to want to ignore the tragedy, the past, the things that happened there in his childhood. Greta's also avoiding her hometown, and she's conscious that she is apart from the landscape that she's found herself in, a southerner and an outsider in a small community. And I loved the ruminations throughout the book on place and belonging, and also how we how we might be able to find some of that in a land where essentially, you know, white colonial settlement is only a couple of hundred years old, a land that is tens of thousands of years old. But I want to get to the place, the landscape, because this is an extraordinary novel of place. As Greta and Joel, as they arrive on Joel's family property in the dark of night, Greta wakes up the next day in what you describe as a bluish liminal space that seems to have no time. And that awakening, it almost seems to have transported Greta as she emerges into this extraordinary landscape. She's kind of seeing it for the first time. I had to do some searches online to, you know, really, really get the imagery right in my own head. It's a beautiful world that sort of seems simultaneously compelling and hostile to Greta. And so I I, I was hoping that you could start us off by evoking this landscape for us.
1: Well, it's a very beautiful uh, landscape, I find. Um, I, in particular, love cycads and rocks, which you'll realise as you read the book. Um, So it's a place where there are very ancient Plants. Cycads are a very ancient um, species of plant. And there's, to me, I really feel as if the country is very strong and there's a sense of presence there. It's also, of course, in the tropics, so it's very warm. And uh, if you have recently come from down south and you're walking through the bush. I felt when I first arrived an odd feeling that my inside world was sort of floating into the outside world, um, into, the, into the bush around me. Uh, so I think it has a very strong presence like that. There's also um, tropical forest and beautiful uh, creeks um, and waterways um, and, again, you sort of have a feeling of a very second uh, and deep environment around you. Um, there's also parts of it can seem quite hostile, as you say, escarpments and um, parts of big floodplains or big um, areas of land, and it's very hot, Um I also think one of the differences from down south are the trees rather than the sort of really big eucalypts that I used to love as a child if they had a hollow in them and you could go inside and and feel as if you might live in this tree house. Um, here the trees are a lot more spindly in some cases or a lot narrower and um, I think for Greta when she gets there she feel as, feels a fear in a way because the bush, she's not used to it and it, it seems to be replicating itself and it she can't sort of make out landmarks and there's also that sense of she, she has three young children and she's sort of there thinking, my goodness, if you got lost here, you would just disappear. So it's a very different landscape for her and you're right that it's both. Um, she's both very curious about it and very fascinated by it. very impacted by the power of it, but also has a fear. Um, that that's a kind of respect hmm. um, as well, realizing that she's a visitor and um, and she does she doesn't know this country.
0: Is there attention also um, in the way that we we might view and perceive the landscape? I mean the. The first thought that comes to mind is, I guess, almost that that totem of Australian literary interpretation of the landscape, Dorothea McKellar's Sunburnt Country. But then I'm also taken to, um, if, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the First Nations poet Alison Whitaker, in her collection, Black Work. She has a poem called A Love, a Love Like Dorothea's, where the poem, it, it takes Dorothea McKellar's Sunburnt Country and... Reinterprets it as the hostility that Dorothea Mckellar sees has to do with her her whiteness. It has to do with her being a very recent transplant to this country, and this is not a hostile land. It's a land that recent arrivals haven't learnt to live with. Did you get a sense of that as you were writing and 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 in your in your experience of this land?
1: Definitely, and um, I was definitely referencing. Um, those kind of tropes, I suppose, of the Australian landscape, and you know, fear of being lost and a sense of being lost because you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right that this story, in many ways, is is very rooted in place and um, senses di- people's different sense of belonging. Um, but I think something that has come forward in this story was there is that interpretations of to really appreciate the environment where she is, to have a real sense of it taking her in and it becomes, for her, I think, a deep appreciation of the landscape that um, is accepting her and welcoming her in at the same time as having um, a respect for it. And not imagining that you can do what you like there um, or that you understand it. But I think she does develop a very deep connection with the country there. And there is a sense that um, it is very beautiful and it does, it becomes a teacher um, for you. And um, certainly that has been my experience as well. I feel very moved by the country here. There there is, as I said, a very deep sense of presence and presences and I like nothing more than to be sitting on a rock somewhere by myself feeling that impact of what is around me, of the nature around me. And I think Greta has that with her as well as acknowledging, I was wanting to acknowledge that she is very aware that she's a visitor uh, not only in that she hasn't been to that place before, but in the sense that she is not a First Nations uh, person and she's going to have a different experience of the country there from the First Nations characters who are in the book.
0: So Greta and Joel have arrived. They're, go- they're going to rejuvenate the homestead. They're going to build cabins and tidy up the land and, um, Joel has has brothers that they they sort of collectively own the land and Greta sets herself a task of, of growing a garden, which is, it's not going great for her. I think she she talks about digging up more rocks than anything else. And then she visits Bryn ostensibly to buy a second-hand camera, but Bryn also gives her some native plants and this finally allows her to get the garden going. Was that also a, a sense there that, the landscape needed Greta to work with it?
1: Yes, and I think that there's an interesting image there, again, I guess, of sort of um, settler agendas there where people want to make the land something that it's not or alter it or put their mark on it. And I'm not saying that in a sort of negative way against Greta and that no-one's allowed to have a garden or something, but... um, she does have to uh, work with it, and there there is a sort of contradiction there in a way. In that, um, in one sense, she is aware of how powerful the environment is, and that she does have a respect for it. But on the other hand, she's also aware that she and she has that question. At one point, she hopes the stones and rocks don't mind that she's moving them. Um, I think, really, you have to you have to grow native. Um, a species here, you can't be trying to have a rose garden, you know. Um, although my mother always says to that, roses are very hardy. But um, <laughs> but uh, yes, she does um, have work with it and work with someone who's lived there before her to um, to find vegetables and tropical, you know, tropical plants that will grow there. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, full marks to people who want to grow roses. I don't know how people can handle the nine months of the year where you're just kind of looking at a very, very um, dangerous stick before the flowers grow. Not for me. (laughs) There is also, you evoke also that sense of working against the land as Greta and the boys explore the property. And there is um, what Joel describes as the lake, which is an incredibly dangerously deadly polluted space that Joel warns everyone away from. And it really struck me again this tension between the the first pass of harshness and and hostility in the heat and the, the landscape and then this very real very dangerous place that has been created only recently um, by human inter- intervention.
1: Yes, I mean, the, the Poison Lake, I guess, is um, a powerful image in many ways. It's it's a metaphor that's working on a underground level with quite a few of the characters, and particularly Joel and Greta. And I was inspired to create that body of water, actually, by something, just a passing comment from a friend who had told me about a dam on a property where she lived, where the water was crystal clear and yet it was toxic. That image just stayed with me and uh, worked away in my imagination for a very long time and it became, you know, it's sort of like a primordial image of this book in a way. Um, and the fact that you can have a, a sort of body of water that you can see through and yet, and yet, you're not really seeing what's there. You think you are, but you're not. And um, just that sense too of almost burying things. It's sort of become like an underwater tip for lake for them. And uh, there's that sense of, "I'll oh, just chuck it in the lake," you know, and you'll forget about it. But um, so the lake is, as, in a way, I guess, uh, an image of the unconscious as well. Uh, For us as as humans, um, that sort of watery space um, that holds um, remnants of our past or is trying to speak to us. Um, And, yes, so the the lake is a very important um, part of the book.
0: Let me ask you then, because the lake is also or ostensibly beautiful and it seems to invite us to break its surface. So, whilst we have that metaphor of buried, secrets buried, things that are toxic that, that are leaking into the, the larger body, we also have this beauty that, that is inviting somehow for us to come in. Is that, is that something that you are able to reconcile for yourself? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and I think um, it's a really interesting point that you raise and it links, for me, it links back to what you were saying earlier about that morning Greta wakes up in this place that is foreign to her. Um, She feels as if she's entering a bluish liminal space, you know, before dawn, that Mm. sort of um, brief moment when everything seems to have that bluish dusky feel. And... uh, She's, she mentions, I think, that it, it could be a dream or it could be real. She sort of enters a, a space where an in-between space in a way and you could interpret the whole story, the whole property as being an in-between space. And the lake is like that as well where it's got this contradiction of being um, having a certain beauty about it um, and yet... Um, having a sense of it being treacherous as well, um, but also that very important one you're saying where it's sort of inviting Greta and that in a way the property and the land invite Greta to discover. Um, she's very curious and she's um, wanting to find things out, to unravel things about Joel's past that he's never told her, that she realises once she's there a whole lot has happened she doesn't know about. Uh, and, and unwittingly her own unconscious starts to sort of unravel with it. I think that for me there's very much the sense in, the, in that lake and that idea of the liminal space, the idea that a nightmare can actually be a friend, uh, you know, um, to me very much, you know, in that dream nightmare world, um, a nightmare can be so terrifying, but what is it trying to tell you? It's, it's actually perhaps trying to be a guide to um, to do that, to welcome you into a space mm-hmm. to look at what you need to see.
0: It's really interesting some of the things you've said there. And I, 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 what I'm about to say, I don't actually believe this is what you were trying to do in the novel, but it's fascinating to me that very early on, I mean, this is in the, in the first chapter and a bit, the um, – waking into that liminal space and then we also have a later moment where Greta becomes very ill and she's delirious for a period of days and I've, been, I've just been engaging with a lot of stories and literature around dreams lately and there is a very real sense that the entire book could exist in some sort of dream space and there are definitely things that suggest that Greta might be dreaming I don't think for a second you've told us an entire story inside Greta's head, but it's fascinating the way we can move in and out of those perceptions.
1: Yes. I mean, I think it's very much a story that um, takes you um, into various liminal spaces and out again, and there's very much a sense of um, the mind work in Greta and and we're not always sure um, if she's on the right track. Mm. and I think that um, one of the very strong themes in the book is, you know, do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? Um, And that's certainly the case for Greta, I think, and that there are varying layers and levels of truth or story that really only make sense when they all start to come over on top of each other, you know, a little bit like... um, Animation, old-fashioned animation slides where, you know, you draw a little part of the picture and then you put another part of the picture on top and you can't get the whole lot till you've got many layers mm-hmm. of drawings on top of each other. And um, I think that is very much um, so with this. And, and that is echoed, I guess, in her work with her photography where she has the experience of taking an image in a camera and then printing it. In- evolves into a picture, um, but is that the real picture? Is that is that what really happened? There's all those, There are all those questions there. And it's also very much why I didn't want to set the story in a, a particular place that is on a real map for us. I um, have it as an imaginary place, even though it's obviously the top end, but um, because I wanted that sense of... You could be travelling up the Stuart Highway, and you see a dirt road off the side that you've never seen before. That you sure wasn't there last time you travelled up the highway, and you take it, and and it takes you into this space that um, you never knew was there. And then when you drive out again, it just closes over, and the road is no longer there. So I really did want that sense of of working in the imagination and with the unconscious in particular. I'm very interested in dreams and the unconscious and how they seep into the conscious world. And um, I think to get back to the power of the environment in this book, I feel as if the country and landscape, particularly here, work very much on an unconscious level with people, particularly visitors
0: I'd like to keep pulling on these threads because I'm I'm very interested in the role that storytelling and the various ways that we tell um, feature throughout. Now, you've already mentioned Greta's photography. It struck me at, at one point in the novel, Greta confesses that she imagines the cycads move about at night. It's that kind of spell of the landscape on her. Was there a sense in her photography that she was trying to capture and maybe even control something of the landscape that somehow in the images she could keep things still keep things in place to look at them to understand them more deeply
1: I think that's such a fascinating question Um, I hadn't really thought of that but I think there is a sense uh, where the photography for her is a little bit of a comfort uh, in a place where she is unfamiliar and um, as I've said, it's not that she doesn't like the place because it's unfamiliar. She's actually very curious about it and explores a lot. But she, the camera is a little bit of a, not a security blanket, but a um, a tool that is helping her familiarise herself with the place. I think when you do, when, when she does, you know, sort of capture a little moment or an image and takes it back and develops it.
0: All right. So we were... We were talking about Greta's photography and we were yeah. thinking we were thinking about the or I, I had sort of asked around the idea of of capturing and holding a landscape in place. And one thing that one thing that I was really interested in is the idea that A photo gives us, I guess, a a false sense of certainty and of permanence that memory is fallible, but somehow if we have a photo of the past and Greta does discover photos, that we somehow have certainty about what happened in the past. And, of course, that's not necessarily true and and Joel holds his past very close to his chest.
1: That's right. And I think um, there is a sense with photographs that they can bring back the past. Mm. Um but it but but they're actually not real and what they're doing is triggering memory. Uh, and then of course there's the issue of how the photographer has interpreted the past mm. because they're looking through a lens and they're actually framing an image so they're framing memory um, and they're framing a particular version of reality. And I think that that is an underpinning key in this book is the notion of different versions of reality um, and different interpretations and how for each person uh, we are looking through a lens. We're looking through a lens of our own individual mind. We're looking through the lens of our family looking through the lens of our culture and everyone does it. None of us is free of it. Um, And I think Greta is quite aware of that. And it's very conscious sort of image to me to have her there with a camera looking through a lens. And it also ties in with what you were alluding to before of a visitor or a settler Mm. or a foreigner Looking
0: through a lens. So let's let's go to some of those. Well, just that idea of a lens, because one lens through which we we see our world are the stories that we tell, and stories that shape us feature prominently in the Curlew's eye. Greta's boys become fascinated by the myth of the six swans, and they they come to believe it somehow represents Joel and his brothers, and something of their upbringing. But of course, this story is is a transplant. It's it's been brought over from the Northern Hemisphere, and they're trying to place it on the world around them. And, of course, there are many transplants of stories. And Greta notes that it makes it, you know, almost impossible to hear the true stories of the land that they're on. White culture has obscured older stories from the true owners of the lands across Australia. How did you want to engage with with those ideas and that tension between these stories?
1: I think I wanted to just explore how we bring in our own stories to explain the world around us. And I think particularly archetypal stories are very important to humans. Fairy tales and cultural stories and religious stories seem to help people navigate the emotional and psychic world they're engaging with. And... In this story, of course, Joel's family have come from a Northern Hemisphere context and it is as if, well, not as if, it it is um, part of his childhood that his mother has is a storyteller and she has brought in um, fairy tales from the Northern Hemisphere to tell her children and there is... A link between the fact that in the story of the six swans, there are six brothers and a sister in the family. And I think Greta draws that connection very strongly too. Um, and I think she sort of ruminates on the fact that um, we do bring in stories with us, but that she consents there are very strong stories in the land and the land holds us whether we know it or not and has its stories whether we know it or not. Um, So I'm not sure if it's not a negative tension, I guess, in a way. It's an awareness she comes to from living on that land. Um, But there is also an awareness, I guess, a sense that she... She's aware that settlers, her settler heritage has come in and imposed stories and structures and foreign materials on the country and she draws a connection with stories that have been brought in.
0: I was interested, um, Greta is able to gradually draw Joel out and in talking about his past, Joel notes that there was nothing enviable about our foreignness then and he talks about his his mother's storytelling her singing but also that that was taboo in the house they weren't they weren't to speak languages other than english um it was it was all about fitting in i think there's also a, a quote about no um no strong odors in the school lunchbox it was it was all about white bread and white bread and fitting in And that, especially, especially that idea of of not speaking anything other than English. I mean, this is an this is an old colonial, um, you know, brutality. um, Anywhere around the world that has been colonized, language has been suppressed as a, a method of essentially cultural genocide. And yet, we find ourselves in the situation now where there is enormous unrest that we sometimes don't even know how to begin do you do you get the sense looking at joel's family and and what he is still to reconcile that that legacy of assimilation has built the trouble of the present
1: that's a very interesting question and yes i I do think it has caused a lot of trouble because people are not fully being allowed to be who they are if you take language which is so intricately and deeply woven into the fabric of a person's soul, body, mind, heart. When you think that, you know, they say babies know the language, their home language before they're even born because they've been listening to it in the womb. I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a an horrific travesty, when anyone is not allowed to speak their language, and when that is, that fundamental right is ripped from them, um, or or chained down, um, and as you say, we see it all around the world. And what, you know, one of the methods, isn't it? That's um, that's you know one of the first horror tricks that um, we see play out in dictatorships and wars and um colonial invasions and so on um with joel's family i think um what you raised there is very interesting about in terms of fitting in and and that links in of course with the whole sense of belonging and with greta feeling that she doesn't quite fit in and everything too but um that desperation to fit in and to be not noticed as different and there's it's alluded to that um, both Joel's parents had a refugee background. They had to escape. And and there's that sense of not wanting to stick out then either. You're trying not to be noticed. You're trying to slip away. And I think that there's a very deep wound there um, that Joel, as a little child, has recognised with his mother that the father um, has imposed this rule; they must only speak English, so they're not, um, so they're not seen as too different. And Joel follows his mother out, sort of led out by her singing and, and her language. Um, and there's quite a deep pain there, and, and quite an impact too when she when Greta finds the audio tape where Maria was singing and the the way Maria's voice sort of floats out across the land, um, freed in a way by the audio cassette. Uh, so, yes, I think it, there is a sense that there is damage there with that kind of assimilation and, and we lose out. We lose out on learning about different cultures and celebrating different cultures and diversity if we try and make everything, the one colour, you know. Um, of course, if you're just painting over um, different languages and culture, you're not getting a true picture either or a full picture or a soulful one. That notion of, of um, not fitting in is very interesting, of course, because that's why we bring in stories from our cultural heritage or our family. Stories are very much and also to homesickness, I think. I mean, I think there's a sense there of Maria telling stories that she's familiar with and that she loves and, and passing on um, stories that she has heard. Um, and there's a sense that she's had a sort of quite itinerant um, background and so she has picked up um, stories probably from, from many different places. But there is also the sense that, um, we tell stories to try and fit in, uh, to try and get a sense of home and fitting in. And, and it links in with um, Uncle Pavel building a castle that is a fairy tale castle um, that um, nevertheless has his own sort of quirks of architecture, but it is something that connects that family back to the world where they came from that they miss. There's also that sense, I think, Greta is aware of, well, we cherish those stories and everything. They, they don't quite fit in the landscape. There's something very potent here, I always feel, about telling children stories from the Northern Hemisphere with snow and fir trees and um, totally different landscapes and clothing and everything that they don't quite fit here in the tropics where, you know, particularly in the build-up, you're sweltering and you're covered in sweat and the last thing you want is more clothes on you and then children are sort of getting Christmas cards with photos of reindeer and snow and children in beanies and scarves. Those stories and those festivals sort of have an odd place in the landscape here. Mm.
0: You've taken me back to last Christmas that I had here in the mountains, where even even down south you get that real disjunct between the northern hemisphere Christmas and and what we experience. Um, but in the mountains here, we, we had a fire on Christmas Day because you just you just can't tell the weather what to do at um, at one thousand meters.
1: No, <laughs> I remember having a Christmas in Melbourne once and it hailed. <laughs> That's Melbourne, of course. You're either there in forty degrees or
0: yeah. or sixteen degrees with hail. Hails, hail's just angry snow. Um, <laughs> let's let's wind up our our discussion of the Curlew's Eye with a prominent thematic and uh, I guess almost a character of the book featuring in the title. The cry of the curlew, it is, it is so prominent in Greta's imaginings of the world that she found herself in. There was actually a really fun moment in my house when I, I, ne- I needed to hear this. So I played a clip. I got a very startled look from one of my cats as the sound of the curlew I- escaped from my computer. Can you tell me just a little bit about the bird that features across the novel?
1: Yes. Well, as I've said at the back in the acknowledgements, um, when I first came... Uh, to Darwin, the first night I was in Darwin I heard a curlew and the sound of it just went right through me and I had never heard it before and it was nighttime and I was in a bush setting and I, I can remember the sort of outline of the trees and all the stars shivering above and this extraordinary cry that just elicited such a poignant, melancholy feeling from my heart and I'm still always very moved when I hear curlews, they're all around here. Um, and of course, Greta, hears this bird which enters the property on the first night they arrive and the curlew does reappear to her and I feel as if there's quite a strong connection between the curlew and Greta and um, they're very interesting birds because if you come across them, instead of fleeing from you, they stand still, they sort of paralyze and um, they stare at you with their large eye waiting to see what you're going to do. And I felt as if um, Greta um, was looking into the eye of the curlew in some ways and the curlew was looking, looking into her and very much for me that curlew whale through the book is calling Greta to look into her own heart and the hearts of those around her, and it reminds me very much of um, the saying, uh, the eye of a friend is the best mirror and the eyes are the windows to the soul, Um, and that's very much what I was wanting to reference with with the title of the book. And also because Curlews carries such a mournful, poignant voice, I think they're very connected to the past and to uh, often to grief, to loss, um, to death often, but also to new beginnings. And to me very much the curlew is calling Greta and leading her on the journey she takes on that property and into her own mind, heart and psyche.
0: Thank you so much, Karen. I'm gonna do a little bit of an, an outro for the interview for us, if um if that's okay, have I still got you?
1: Yes, you have. Oh. I'm just wondering, Andrew, if with that question I should if if I should mention that the curlew has a significant role in a lot of First Nations stories, but this is not looking through that lens. It's very much looking through a settlers lens and the alarm people had with the curlew. I mean, they say that when people first came northern hemisphere people first came, they thought that cry was of a woman or a child um, and were very alarmed by it. And um, I don't know whether I should just make it clear I'm not looking through the perspective of a First Nations story with it. What do you think?
0: Well, I mean, I think even... The, the comments that you've just added there, I, it very much engages with what we were discussing before, I think, about the way stories are used, but then they stories are also transplants. We talked earlier about how stories are, stories can be transplanted and that there is a tension there in the way that we interpret, say, the landscape or um, different aspects of, of life. Um, and, and I think thematically, as as it runs through The Curlew's Eye, that, that has featured in our, our conversation. Yeah. I am speaking with Karen Manton. We're discussing The Curlew's Eye. It is her first novel and a fabulously evocative and topographical doesn't seem like the right word, Karen, but it has taken me up to the landscapes of the Northern Territory that the story inhabits. And it's been just an absolutely wonderful journey. Karen. thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andrew.
0: That's it for this great conversation with Karen Manton. Karen's debut novel is The Curlew's Eye. It's out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We're at Final Draft 2 SER. If you want to chat books or even ask anything about the show, you can email finaldraft at 2ser.com and subscribe in your podcast app wherever you get your podcasts. There is a new Great Conversation every week. There are bonuses during the week. It is a great way to stay in touch with the latest books. I'm Andrew Popel. You will catch me next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Have a happy week of reading. Bye now.